The 53rd New York Film Festival is right around the corner. Since 1963, NYFF has brought the best in world cinema to Lincoln Center, featuring established auteurs as well as fresh new talent. This year's edition is no different, with the latest from stateside favorites like Todd Haynes, Steven Spielberg, Michael Moore, and Danny Boyle, as well as international auteurs like Ho Shao Shen, Michelle Gondry, Chantal Ackerman, and Apichapong Wursitikal. The closing night selection comes from acclaimed actor Don Cheadle, who makes his directorial debut with Miles Ahead, the highly anticipated biopic of jazz legend Miles Davis. In addition to the main slate selections, the festival also includes newly restored classics, sidebars featuring exciting new works in documentary, avant-garde and immersive media, filmmaker talks, shorts programs, special events, and much more. Tickets to the New York Film Festival go on sale September 13th. Visit filmlink.org NYFF for more info. From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you are listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's September 9th, 2015. I'm Michael Lodemark, one of the show's producers. Today we're featuring a conversation with actor and humanitarian Richard Gere. His new film, Time Out of Mind, opens in select theaters this weekend. Jesus Christ. Who the hell are you? For you, dear, I was born. Are you and have you been addicted to any legal or illegal substances? For you, I was raised Time Out of Mind was written and directed by Oren Moverman whose previous credits as a writer include Todd Haynes' 2007 feature, I'm Not There, and this year's highly acclaimed Brian Wilson biopic, Love and Mercy. In Time Out of Mind, Gear plays George, a homeless man in New York who attempts to repair his relationship with his estranged daughter while navigating the hardships and humiliations of life on the streets. The film was an official selection at the 52nd New York Film Festival last fall, and during the festival, we celebrated Richard Gere with a special evening dedicated to his work as an actor and activist. After an intimate dinner, Gear joined festival director Kent Jones for an in-depth conversation about Time Out of Mind and his career. So let's go now to that conversation. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Well, we have to start off by talking about teachers, man, because, you know... We were talking about teachers before, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it turns out that I know, I knew your uh, college acting teacher. Um, And there were two teachers that we were talking about that you felt you needed to have with you when you were honored at an earlier event about... 12 years ago? Yeah, we were talking about the Museum of the Moving Image. And um, I I mean, this thing of lineage is very important. There's none of us is a virgin birth. We all come from somewhere. And especially in in the arts, we all come from many different places, many different lineages. So anyhow, there was this event. And the only, what made it meaningful to me is that I'll do this, but I want to have my acting teachers there honoring my career because they were 
in the formative years, and, and one was at the University of Massachusetts, uh, Doris Abramson. And a lovely, just sweet, generous, smart, incredibly kindly person who was, um, gave me great confidence in the years when one doesn't have a natural <laughs> confidence. <Yeah. laughs> she was incredibly generous to me. You mean you weren't naturally confident as an adolescent? <laughs> I don't know too many 18-year-old oh, wow. boys yeah. who were real confident. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Doris gave you that uh, Well, she was a wonderful coach. She was a wonderful acting coach, and it was a time, too, of... Um, you know, alternative, this is 1967, I graduated from high school, so 67, 68, 69, I know her. And it was a time when there was so much really experimental theater going on, and, and um, theater was becoming internationalized, and Grotowski was, was a big deal at that point, and so many wonderful off and off, off-Broadway, and even farther off than that, playwrights who were doing extraordinary things, who were trying to find acting styles that would fit that kind of work. And uh, she was very open to that, although she was, she seemed ancient to me at the time. She's probably 45. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> she was very well, if you open. were 18, she was yeah, ancient. I was 18, yeah. she was ancient, yeah. yeah. And uh, there's a lot of white hair in this room today, I noticed, <laughs> looking around. A lot of white hair. Everyone's ducking away now. Wow. But, yeah. Now we're all um, going to be self-conscious. <laughs> no, but she was a wonderful teacher and a very kind, kind person. And um, we were talking about this before. She wasn't... I don't even know where she came from. As, uh, I didn't know her, her backstory, but she wasn't an operatic person. She was a person. And her approach was reality. And, but her approach, too, was seeing into her students and finding out what was special. In, in each student. And it wasn't about her. Um, same way we were talking about Wynne Handman. Yeah. I'm sure there are people here who know Wynne Handman. Does anybody here know Wynne Handman? This is right, right here. here Wynne uh, started the American Place Theater, but he was also one of the great acting teachers in New York. And he's still with us now. He's 80-something years old and just is came out with teaching? a new book. Still teaching. Yeah. Extraordinary. But his whole thing, too, was, was, again, it wasn't about him, although he was kind of an extraordinary personality and very charismatic. He, he had that, the will and the talent to see into young people and taste something that other people maybe could not taste, mm -hmm. could sense something there that, that hadn't come out yet. It was latent and created the environment for that to come to fruition, to emerge and, and, and become meaningful in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's, those are teachers. I mean, that's, that's what a teacher does. Yeah, and that was during the era, as we were talking about before, uh, of the big heavyweight acting teachers like Strasberg, Adler, Berghoff, uh, Meisner, and he was associated with Meisner, but unlike them, you said he was helping you listen to yourself. Yeah, I think, look, the, in, the great, great art doesn't come from pretending to be someone else, you start that way. You yeah. like someone else's work and you, of course, you, you mimic that in some way. You mm. pretend to be that. You, you, you use the touchstones of that, of what you find, what, what touches your own heart, your own emotions. But everything that's special breaks all the rules. Mm -hmm. Everything. 
there's, there's nothing that I've done that is a value that didn't break the rules, mostly because I didn't know what the rules were to begin with. Mm -hmm. and, but I think for all of us, the times that we are, feel confident enough and connected to our true selves that we break the rules, maybe something special can happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was it that, uh, where did you get the, the, the Jones for acting to begin with? What was it that drew you? My mother just had her 90th birthday. And just a few days ago, and my, my, we were just talking about this over here. My mother is a very complex person, and, and uh, she, um, very bright, very bright, but it was very hard for it to come out. And, um, but I remember her making costumes for me when I was very, very young. It was a sailor costume, or it was a, a um, Daniel Boone costume. Yeah. Whatever it was, and I think that was the beginnings of kind of story, play acting, mm -hmm. storytelling, mm -hmm. assuming characters. Yeah. And um, as I think it is with most actors in the beginning, it has to change later on. But I think in the beginning, it's a way of, of connecting to the world is assuming a character. We all do that anyhow. You know, we're a businessman, or we are, we're a butcher, or we are a taxi driver, whatever it is. But those, it's a way of creating a a character mm -hmm. that somehow allows us to engage the world. Mm. So did you become conscious as a person of the idea of creating a character when you were young? I mean, creating yourself, yeah. Did you have an awareness of that? I think, you know, I, I think I was in such a dream world when yeah. I was a kid that I wasn't aware of that. I was aware of dreams, and I preferred dreams. I preferred looking at the stars at night yeah. than... Um, it was a f funny kind of world that I... You grew up where you could see it? I grew up in Leave It to Beaver Land. Uh-huh. And it was the suburbs, and it was... Uh, th that was my world. Yeah. I related very d directly to that. So, and, and I, I can function very well in that world, but there's another side of me that is definitely happier lying on my back at night on the grass, the wet grass, looking at stars. Mm. So I think that's the, the creative side... Um, is still very powerful in me, but also the, I'm very rooted. I'm very much connected to my. I have so many friends here today. I mean, this is like a really good friends, and uh, it's really important to me that uh, that you're all here. But I'm connected to you all, so that that's, uh keeps me healthy. Mm. Were you? Did you study music when you were young? You know, I studied as a as a trumpeter. Oh, I was actually quite good as a oh. trumpeter, and I was with. I actually played with the Syracuse Symphony when I was in my teens. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, I probably could have had some kind of a career as that, but at a certain point it wasn't cool anymore to do that. Mm -hmm. So guitar and, and piano became much more interesting to me. Yeah, There were more girls associated with yeah. guitars and yeah. pianos. Than yeah, if you're playing the piano, they're going to... Um, I'm bringing that up because you actually do play the piano in the film. But we'll talk about that. Later. Okay. Yeah, well, we can talk about that later. We can save that for... <laughs> okay. What... <clears throat> this is a question that's asked often, and I'm wondering... I'm, I'm thinking that you'll have a very particular answer for it, um, an illuminating answer. What is it that separates stage acting from film acting? Orson Welles said that he thought that there was nothing, that there was no separation for other no, people. No, I think I don't think conceptually, in in a pure sense, there isn't anything. But I, I've, I'll give you my own experience of it: is that I'm easily seduced by an audience. 
and I'm easily seduced into knowing what moments work. And the repetition of that deadens me, and that's just my problem. Uh, I am much more suited to the pressure and the spontaneity of having to come up with it in the moment. <laughs> I'm looking over at Oren right now, but we did a lot of that on this movie. Of, um, you know, the, the, the freshness of that. I always liked rehearsals better than performing because it was discovery. And I never had, I, I know some actors who are strong as bulls and they can, they could be in their, the third year of, of a production and they're still finding new stuff. I'm, I'm dead by then. I'm, I'm just, I'm bored, I'm dead, I'm disgusted with myself, I'm, I, I'm done. Really, film acting works much better for me, and I like the... There is a metaphorical sense of an audience, because you have a director, you have a cameraman there, you have, you have a crew. In that sense, there's still an audience there, but it's not as, as clearly defined as when you're on a proscenium stage. And I, and I have had extraordinary experiences on the stage, but I'm, by the second month, I'm, I'm gone. I'm, that's it. That's yeah. it. I'm done. Is there also in film an awareness, or I hesitate to call it an anxiety, but an awareness that what you do is going to be taken and shaped by someone in the editing room, perhaps, into something that... You <laughs> well, I have, I have an agent over there who's laughing now because he knows what I'm going to say. Oh. <laughs> Andrew, stand up. Andrew Finkelstein is my agent. Now, the story of Andrew is that, first of all, he's an extraordinary wife. Lauren, stand up to her. Are you there? Is Lauren there? What? Uh, Washing her hands. When she comes yeah. back, I'll She'll stand up her again. Yeah. Anyhow, I had one agent for 40 years, from the time I was 20. And he, he died a few years ago. I didn't know what to do. I was like someone who'd been married for 40 years. I never even looked at another woman, you know? It's like, I don't know what to do. You find an agent. So Andrew had been Ed Lamato's assistant for many years. And he was in my life still in this process. And it was really important for me to keep that connection. He's a brilliant agent on his own. So we just talk about lineage. That's another lineage that continues and I've wanted to stay part of. So but anyway, what we were talking about there was a movie in particular that he Editing. knows that, um, yeah, I thought it was one of the best performances I gave, and this, this director totally screwed it up. Oh. Totally screwed it up. Okay. Made me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different kind of experience. And then we have That's a director the the over experience. here. Yeah, who did some. <laughs> Oren Moverman. You got a director in the house. He should stand up, too. <laughs> Oren, stand up. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Oren Moverman. Director, time out of mind who loves actors, and I think he loves all actors. I've seen him with a lot of different actors that loves actors, and I think um, we had an especial affinity for each other. So he was, uh, he was kind of delighted with what was happening and, and did an extraordinary job on, um, on a very improvis improvisatory, is that the word? Yeah, performance. That that, um, he picked out the best stuff and made it look pretty good. Do you enjoy going uh, back and looking at films that you've made? Oh, I yeah. hate it. Yeah, hate who it. does, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know many actors who do, but I have yeah. to say that this, I haven't gotten there with this movie yet, because I was 
when we screened actually at the festival. Yeah. I was just going to watch the first few minutes just to see what it was like on this beautiful screen and great yeah. sound and with that audience. And I ended up watching the whole movie again. I was sucked in again. Well, I mean, you know, let's, I, first of all, how many people in the room have seen, I hope everyone has seen Time Out of Mind. Yeah, okay. Good enough. Um, it's an extraordinary film and a very, very special one. And um, this was a project that you had, the, the idea of the project was something that you had had in mind for quite a while, right? The, um, of a project. Well, it was, this script came to me yes. and a long time ago. How long I don't ago? Even, no, Andrew, 10 years ago? 15 years ago. 15? Are you mm. serious? 15 years ago. And it was a script that had been written in 1988. Mm. And it was about a homeless guy. And, and certain touchstones that are still in the movie, the re some relationships that are still there. This, and um, it, it didn't work. But there was something really true and honest and deep about it that was there. <laughs> and I, I didn't quite know how to bring it out. It had a, a, a whole third act, which was a court case. Oh. And there That's... were some villains in the movie. It just didn't, oh, wow. it didn't work. That's... It just didn't work. Very different. And, uh, but there was a core that I kept coming back to. And at one point, I was actually going to direct the movie. I bought the script, and I was going to direct it myself. Mm -hmm. And I was going by the seat of my pants. I said, I'm going to figure out how to do this. And I, I lost the impetus. And Caroline Kaplan... Another Caroline person who should really she stand up. Caroline, stand up. Yeah. Caroline Kaplan, time out of mine. Caroline Kaplan, ladies and gentlemen, has had a profound effect on my life. <laughs> that she came to work with me, and um, she's a very talented producer and has run a lot of companies. She's a big shot. I don't know why she's working with me, but she's extraordinary. And she looked through these scripts that I had, and she picked out this one. I said, this is, this is one you've got to stay with. You've got to work on this. And we started talking about my ideas of how I saw it, what it, what it should feel like, this movie. And strangely enough, is actually the way I was talking about it is the way it's ended up. It was kind of miraculous. But I didn't know how to, I, I'm not a writer, I couldn't write it. And we started talking about who can make this work. And we said, well, we need someone like Oren Moverman. Of course, he won't do it because he's too famous and too rich now. And <laughs> makes way too much money and he has, he's doing 50 scripts at the same time. You'll never be able to do this. But I said, well, look, I know Oren because we had done, done the uh, I'm Not There movie, the Bob Dylan movie with, with Todd Haynes. And uh, so I said, look, maybe I should call him sometime and just ask him who he would suggest. Well, as it turned out, we went to a, um, an academy cocktail hour for new members. And uh, an agent of mine at the time dragged me to this thing. I didn't even want to go. And Orrin was there. So it was like kind of this wonderful moment where he and I just kind of talking again. And we, you know, enjoyed each other's company. And I said, well, look, I'm working on this thing. And I know you can't do it, but I described the thing. And he said, well, what about me? And I said, okay, really? And he said, yeah, send it to me. So he read it. He should tell the rest of the story. He never gets to tell his side of the story. <laughs> but, 
So anyhow, he saw what was there too, and we, we just dove in and figured it out. And he wrote a brilliant script, which he should get incredible credit for, and also decided to direct it, which made me really happy, because I could just focus on playing this really complex character. So thank you, Warren. Thank you. I got, at some point during the summer, an email from Carolyn Kaplan, someone I've known very well for about 20 years, 25 years maybe even. Oh, sorry. Um, someone for, <laughs> yeah, someone I've always loved. We've always had a very special friendship. And she said, you know, we have this movie and, you know, uh, we'd love for you to take a look at it and see what you think. And, um, you know, so Oren and I met. Uh, he gave me a cut of the film. I looked at it and I was, um, I put it on at, uh, I think one o'clock in the morning or something, and I and I found myself just mesmerized. Um, there it was, you know, over in the middle of the dead of night, uh, mesmerized and haunted, um, because it's a film that is all that you discover it as your character. In a way, the audience is discovering what the film is as the character is discovering what his situation is. He's coming to terms with. The fact that he has no home, that he has no roof over his head, that he has no money, that he has to find, you know, his birth certificate in order to get, you know, his benefits, and he can't get his birth certificate unless he has someone countersign, and that the city, the way that the film is conceived and written, is, um, is that the city at all times, through the soundtrack and through the way that the film is shot with long lenses, is always just kind of overwhelming your character and is your co-star, really. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of work. And, uh, you know, for you and for Oren, and um, uh, your performance is, um, you're watching someone kind of, conscious, the consciousness of their situation in life dawn on them, and it's extraordinary. Uh, so my hat's off to you. <laughs> One of, thank you. Thank you all, thank you. One of the things that the previous incarnation, the original incarnation of this script, was it was written in a way from fear. It was continually telling you the reasons why. Yeah. And I don't care right. at all yeah. the reasons why. That's what we figure out when we're watching the movie. You can put and it together. And Oren didn't care why. Yeah. It's not, not interesting. Very much in life, it's not interesting why. Yeah. Just the fact is is enough. Yeah. And the brilliance, I think, of what Oren came up with when he was doing his rewrite was the process mm -hmm. became deeply important. Yeah. Character was was in fact expressed in process. Yes. And we were referencing earlier films, the Bresson films and the uh, the, the Italian neorealist films. But the, the the Bresson film, the Pickpocket, for instance, is it's. There's very little character in that. You watch the guy. How do you, how are you a pickpocket? Yeah. What's the what are the techniques of being a pickpocket? Mm. In the same way, this is what are the techniques of being on the street? Yeah. What do you, how do you do it? Right. Became how we actually defined character and revealed history, mm -hmm. revealed stuff. Yeah. You know that maybe we could identify with in a more rational way. Yeah. But we were more interested in hitting. Something unknowable, something unnameable, mm. unless you're a poet, 
that, that kind of primitive yearning to be alive, yearning to emerge, yearning mm -hmm. to be real, mm -hmm. yearning to connect. Um, not an easy thing to, to f try to portray in two hours and keep an audience uh, in the same universe. Mm. But that was the task we set for ourselves. Um, and um, I, we don't even know how we did it, frankly. I mean, Orr and I keep looking at each other, and how did we do this? Uh, I think it was because our motivation was good. Mm -hmm. And we were clear about that, that we yeah. didn't want the normal kind of understanding, yeah. easy understanding. Yeah. We, we were demanding of an audience to, to let go of those normal expectations of storytelling. Yes. Yeah, because it's about the action of, as you, you know, to paraphrase what you just said, of someone trying to speak for themselves and say, I am here. Um, He's asking, what is a human being? Yeah. The movie's asking that. What is a human being? Yeah. Is it what other people project on it? Mm -hmm. Is it just an idea? Am I just an idea? Mm -hmm. Am I a cartoon? Mm. Am I just an idea? Mm. Uh, maybe we are. Mm -hmm. But inside of that, there is this kernel of yearning and compassion mm -hmm. that are continually exploding into the universe and trying to make connections. Mm. You know, and you can see this in primitive waves, a guy like this, you know, of, of trying to reach out, of trying, the world also trying to engage him mm -hmm. in, in ways. Mm -hmm. We made, we're very clear in this, there's no villains. We wanted no bad guys in this. We don't need bad guys. Yeah. The world doesn't need bad guys to explore the unknown, the shadow mm -hmm. sides of all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the other night when we were doing the Q&A after the, the screening, uh, Ben Vereen, who's in the film, who's extraordinary in the film, um, was saying that uh, when you guys were on the street in character and you were shooting with the long lenses um, and people just weren't looking at you, you know, I think he was talking about the scene specifically with the scene where you were panhandling at Astor Place, that he realized that's when he got spooked. He realized, okay, that's, you know, now I know, I really know what this, you know, what that experience is. You know, these are the people that you don't look at. You don't want to acknowledge that. You don't want to acknowledge that possible future for yourself, right? Yeah, it's, um, it's that, it's, it's, it's not even failure. I see, sometimes I say, what's well, about, it's, it's that black hole of failure and they can see it from two blocks away. You know, when I was in the middle of that, and that was the first scene we shot, it was me panhandling on Astor Place, right near the cube, right there. I mean, it was just iconic downtown New York, it was it. And I've been there a million times, trying to walk through as fast as I can so I don't get recognized. But there I am, this was a test day for the film, and it was, the, the we were testing costumes, lenses, blah, blah, that isn't really what we were testing. What we were testing was, will the concept work? of me being in New York, a panhandling, and get footage without people stopping and freaking out or whatever they were gonna do. I didn't know what they were gonna do. We didn't know. So we set this up. The cameras were in, I don't know, Orin, should I, you could actually describe this more than me. Cam he, he doesn't want to. <laughs> cameras, were in, cameras were in the, um, the Starbucks and um, you know, I w walked out there with an AD who had like, a, like an FBI 
mic in his, in his wrist. And he said, okay, we're rolling. <laughs> I had my hat down kind of, I was, I was freaked out. I have to tell you the truth. I was freaked out being there. And my hat kind of watch cap was down over my, kind of my eyes and nothing happened. No one was paying it. Nobody was looking at me. Nobody. And I started to get more brave with it and looked around and started looking people in the eyes. No one would make eye contact with me. And I was, I, you know, I was in character. So there was some kind of a vibe coming off of me of homeless guy, panhandler. And the clothes fit the general idea of panhandler. And it was generally the idea of failure and misery. And I could see people from two blocks away. When I re relaxed into this and I was really looking at people, I could see from two blocks away, they'd made a decision. Consciously, unconsciously, who knows. They were going to walk in the other direction. They, no, even if they walked right up to me. Yes. It, it, they wouldn't get too close and they wouldn't make eye contact. Right. And, but I also see even, even more interesting than that, I could see all these plays of, why does this motherfucker make me feel guilty? Right. I'm not going to give him anything. Right. He's not going to make me give him any, oh, fuck, I'll give him, no, I don't want to, but he's making me feel good. Why do I even have to think about this? Mm. And very quick mm. volume of emotions that were, as people were spinning, walking by me. It wasn't what they were avoiding, mm. but it, it was, um, I think it was, in, ultimately, it was, it was a kind of a deeper kind of fear than what I can even explain right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a fear, we talk about it in the movie, it's a fear of, of lack of identity themselves. Mm -hmm. Is that if this, this can exist in our world, mm -hmm. then it challenges all the touchstones that I have that give me a sense of reality and place mm -hmm. in the universe. Yeah, and that's echoed in the way that the film is made. You know, the, for those of you who haven't seen Time Out of Mind, and I would urge you to see it as soon as possible. Um, the way that the movie is made, it's shot with long lenses, meaning telephoto lenses, so that the space is collapsed and you can shoot from great distances. It stacks up energy, too. Yeah. It's not just, you know, you see it long up close, but it stacks up everything in between. So yeah. it's very dense. And the, the brilliance of what Oren was doing pictorially was, was it, there are reflections playing off everything. Yeah. We even carried glass with us. It was always shooting through glass so there would be reflections and movement. You'd see passerbys from over here reflected in the glass and cars coming by. So my face, very rarely is my face not have something dancing on it from these reflections, mm. which, which are almost the equivalent of, of language and thoughts were these images that were passing constantly. This, it plays like a, essentially a, a, a silent movie. Yeah. You know, if we had no dialogue, the, the movie would still play really well. Except the soundtrack is extraordinary. Except the sounds themselves. Yes. It's yes. the sounds of the city um, that become the music of the film. Um, and between the sounds and the, as you put it, the stacked up images, uh, it's almost as if the character is um, on the verge of disappearing. Um. Disappearing in, in madness. I've had a lot of friends come to me and say, was he crazy? Yeah. And I said, well, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I, think, um, I think very quickly we all could descend into some levels of disconnect mm -hmm. on the streets mm -hmm. where no one's reacting to you anymore. Mm -hmm. 
You know, we put a scene in here. I'm not. I, I'm starting to understand why I wanted it in the movie now, but the one where I'm pissing on the street. And it was something that I had witnessed. On, it was actually on 14th Street, and I was walking there one day, and a guy came out of a bar, and it was late morning, and he was drunk already, and this huge guy, and he came out to the street, and he just pulled on his fly, and his huge dick hanging out there, <laughs> and he just, he just whizzed away. Yeah. And, said, and I thought, this is incredible. And, I, and the bartender came out and said, what are you doing? You're an animal. Get out of here. But it was like one of the, f the only moments on the street where someone reacts to him. You have to violate the rules badly, mm. behave badly to have the world engage you. Now, let me ask you a, a hypothetical. If, if someone had come to you with such a script or with such an idea at an earlier moment in your life as an actor, let's say in the early 80s when you were um, uh, just starting to... Um, to break as an actor um, in movies, would you have had the same kind of attraction to it? Sure, it was a great yeah. part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but especially you know, look, I knew Oren's work before. He made two terrific films. Mm -hmm. I mean, guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, and he deeply connected with the possibilities here too. So that was always the touchstone for me. Mm -hmm. Is there some mystery, human mystery here? Am I doing it with people who also yeah. intuit the mystery? of yeah. what we can yes. play with, explore, yeah. find out, learn something from. And yeah, yeah, sure, why not? Well, I guess what I'm asking you is about a life of, this, is, this performance feels like uh, it's the result of a life of, uh, at your craft. Um, you know, not the whole life, because you know, there's a lot more to go. Well, what probably just... really helped is I was in the middle of a divorce right then, oh, too. Oh, I see, so, okay. No. I mean, the emotions were right on the surface with yeah. me, so that, okay. that probably had I wasn't going to gonna ask about that, but... Uh, you know. But you were. You brought it up, so... <laughs> oh, okay. That <laughs> shut you up, didn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the, 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 it's a performance that has a rare simplicity. Um, and... Uh, um, you know, there's there was had to be the style of this film. Right, it, it had to be. We we you can't you can't do something like this and look at it from outside. Yeah, you can only do it from inside. Mm -hmm. It would have been blasphemy. Mm -hmm. It would have been an outrage, I think, to to do a fake version of this movie, mm -hmm. a um, the dramaturgical version, kind of using homelessness as a vehicle to entertain somehow or have a cheap emotion. It would have, it would have been really horrible, yep. horrible, horrible. And uh, we, we kind of refused to do that from the beginning. Um, everyone got on the same wavelength with it too. I mean, mm -hmm. you see the other performances. Kira does an extraordinary job and this band obviously is great. And, and Jenna, and, and even the extras in this, you know, it, it, not everyone here has seen the movie. When you see the movie... Yeah, so we see Kira, Kira Sedgwick. Kira Sedgwick. Uh, Jenna Malone. Uh, um, the, the guys in the shelter, the only places we used extras, um, and half, I don't know what the, the numbers were, but a lot of them were actually shelter people who were friends of ours and, and were part of our production in some way. And, and half were extras, and the extras were extraordinary. 
extraordinary. It brought you know a really deep, profound reality to this thing mm -hmm. uh, in ways you don't normally see in movies. Yes, there's no place the camera could go and not feel real. Yeah. Yeah, including Bellevue, where you guys had a very oh yeah, we got this shoot in Bellevue. See, this is yeah. not faked Bellevue. We didn't build Bellevue. We actually shot in Bellevue. Yeah, we shot in the actual rooms. Yeah, with with the clock ticking, right? Yeah, we shot about ten hours. We shot everything that was Bellevue, outside and in. Did it really quick one night. And you got what you needed just as the they were shutting the doors, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you how your acting and your spiritual practice inform one another? And did one lead to the other, to what the relationship was? People ask me that kind of question a lot, and I never have a really good answer for mm -hmm. it. It's, um, look, every, everything that one does in life certainly is informed by how open your heart is and how much wisdom you're able to manifest. Everything. And that is, I suppose that's spiritual, whatever that is. I don't know what spiritual is. So of course it's gonna get into everything you do. It's gonna get into your creative life. It'll be in your, your relationships with people and your friends and it gets into everything, of course. Um, I think what it helps with the most is actually working with people you know, is creating atmospheres where you can be very, uh, one, one has the tools to be much more patient than one was before. I can see that with myself. I get much less angry than I did when I was a kid. And I don't think it's just because I'm older, but um, it certainly helps. In an enterprise like this where you have hundreds of people working together and enormous time and money pressure and and it's very rare that everything is exactly the way you want it to be. It's very easy to blow up, and that will destroy everything. So the atmosphere that we had on this film, I think, was pretty extraordinary all the way around, of people being incredibly generous and forgiving of each other. It's also, among many other things, uh, a great New York movie. I wouldn't... <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... it's well, I have to say thank you for having us here at the festival, because that was uh, one of the things that delighted us the most, is this is a New York movie. Everything about it is New York. And the dreams of New York, the yearnings of New York, the yearnings of the big city, of, of Oz. This is it, Gotham City. And uh, the fact that we were able to make the movie here, which was difficult, but we made the movie here, and then to be honored to be in the festival here in New York is really an extraordinary experience for all of us. Um, we didn't hesitate for a minute. We're very proud to have you. You did here. a minute, actually. There was a moment we called you and said, we called and said, do you want it or not? No. <laughs> no. Uh, we're very proud to um, invite it, and we're very proud to have it here and to have you here. And uh, I really want to thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs>
Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.